Anyway. We plow ahead. We will, because uh, I suppose there's a connection to our next uh, guest as well, um, because that aforesaid game involving Tulla and Carcassel um, at number 14 on the Tulla team will be uh, Aoife Dooley. And uh, Aoife's father is sitting across the table from us now, <laughs> Timmy, Senator Timmy Dooley. Timmy, yeah. you're welcome again to Scarif Bay Community Radio. Thanks very much, Jim. Thanks. Yeah. Pleasure to be here welcome as always. Timmy. Thanks, John. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose we, we didn't um, bring you in specifically to talk about Camogie, but I suppose it, following on from what mm. Eleanor was saying there, um, it, it has increased in importance hugely uh, right across East Clare. I'm thinking of you know, a Whitegate have a strong Camogie team, so have Fecal Kildina have merged to form the one club, uh, Tulla, mm. and you have mm, O'Callaghan's Mills, Budike, mm. another club. So mm. things are going well in, in Camogie world. Yeah, it, it's here. very it's very strong across East Clare, which which is great to see. And I suppose perhaps some of that is the the success that 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 the East Clare area has had in in hurling generally over recent years. And, like I, I just listened to some of what Eleanor was saying, and she, she's she's got a she's got a really good grasp of what's going on and and what needs to happen, and like I, I if you look at what's happening even nationally with ladies football, um, because there's been a very progressive team at the top organising ladies football now over the years, they get huge uh, audiences now in Crow Park. So, um, like I, I feel there's a great future there. I think that. The games, the Camogie games, are as good as any hurling game. No doubt about it. I'm maybe <coughs> biased. I have two daughters, but I have yeah. I have nephews who play hurling as well and nieces. Um, and they're as good a game as you'll get. Uh, I just think, though, that there needs to be greater leadership at the top. Um, I think the initiative taken by the current Minister for Sport in terms of ensuring that it's like for like for, for, for female participation, um, that's a really important signal. Uh, because money uh, money talks at the end of the day. It talks in terms of facilities. Um, and until such time as the Camogie players have equal access to the main pitch in the parish as the boys do, we're not going to see you know, real equality. Because what, what I've seen over... It's changing now, but what we've seen for many years was um, the female players, they get to a certain level. They don't feel that they're getting the support at the top. And then they there's other pursuits in life and they drift away from the game and the way you, you you turn that around is to show them the level of support the investment in the coaching the fitness the strengthening and conditioning that has to form part of it as well because they need to feel that they're as valued uh, as their counterparts uh, on the on the on the other side maybe, of the gender maybe one and they are here in east clare which is why maybe it's one there. organization to me I've always believed that it should be. Um, it, it has to be. Um, and then you get equal access to facilities. In fact, you grow facilities um, because with the female participation, the end of the day, in I think anybody being honest will tell you that the bedrock behind most of the GA clubs are strong women who are organising things. The fellas leave it to shout. Fundraising. Fun- fundraising, organising, back office management. Um, and just generally making sure everything is is done on time and and usually on budget. Yes. Uh, and and that's not been in any way sexist. It's just no. when it comes to organisation uh, and management, women have shown uh, maybe much greater capacity than than men. So I think if we if we harness that, um, level the structure to some extent that 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 women and men have equal access to facilities um, and to money, um, we'll 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 see what's happening in East Clare continue across the country. So. Listen, right future, hopefully. We we just we brought you in talk maybe about a number of yeah. things and issues that, uh, but I suppose we have to start um, 
with what's going on in London. Um, I mean, I know, you know, from, from somebody who's involved in, in politics and in the Dáil, it, it must seem very strange. I know that strange things go on in all political circles and there's a lot of, you know, there, there's often conflict. But it seems to have taken, uh, they seem in London to have taken it to a new level. Well, you're always slow to comment on what goes on in other jurisdictions. Oh, yeah, I, 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 I realise that. But, yeah, but, but, yeah, but, 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 but you couldn't but comment. The, yeah. those, the, those were I'm kind of prefacing what, what I might say, that you're, that you're slow to. But in a case like this, you kind of, you kind of have to. Um, like, it's farcical um, to see what has happened in the last 45 days, um, to see a country that has been such a beacon for democracy going back over generations, such a, a world leader, um, you know, having such influence around the world for, 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 for centuries, some of it very negative from our, for our own perspective. Um, but, but, but to see what has happened, and you can trace it, it just didn't happen yesterday or it didn't happen last week or it didn't happen with the emergence of Boris Johnson as leadership. He's, he's kind of the symptom uh, of, the, of, of, of a much bigger uh, problem. Um, and I think what has happened in, 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 in recent years is people from a British tradition at the upper echelons of British society have felt that they were losing power and control. Um, and these are people who historically or hereditarily were very well healed. Um, they have a control within um, the Conservative Party, um, both at membership and at senior level. And many of them are landed and they're people with titles and they're people who come from a particular background. And they have felt that they're losing control with, 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 with Britain's participation in Europe, I suppose. And we've seen that as a huge advantage from an Irish perspective. We don't see the loss of sovereignty by being in Europe. We see it as a sharing and pooling of sovereignty to the benefit of a much wider community. And there's a certain click within British politics that could never, could never get their heads around that or didn't accept it because they were ceding control to their own people, actually, mm. was what the... They were really ceding control because they were able to pull the levers of power for so long. I mean, it's always said that the Tories of the Conservative Party was the natural party of government. And in many ways, and they, they believed had that. even more control because they were influential right at the heart of Europe. And they were influential right at the heart of Europe because of their size and scale. But they're not true. That thinking is not truly democratic. And the people who, who were part of that clique... Uh, aren't really democratic. They hated to see themselves losing that power and control. And that then this group developed within the Tories, that European Research Group, the ERG group, yes. which is often referred to. Like, I know some of these people. I've, I've, I've worked with them on committees. And whilst on a one-to-one, -one they're fine. When they get together, they see themselves in a different league to people who are elected democratically by the people. They almost feel they have some kind of divine right to rule. Well, Timmy, uh, holding on... Holding Holding on that one, the um, the British, the English people, mm. English people, have dominated the world for two hundred years. The number one economy in the world, the number one uh, militarily in the world. They won two wars. Okay, mm. they were used to being, if you like, uh, top dog. Mm. It was very difficult. And you mentioned this a little already. Very difficult for an Englishman to accept that there now has emerged in, in Western Europe a, uh, the same power uh, that, we that the English opposed for two wars. And they see the 
their place being taken again by Germany. They fear the rise of Germany. Germany having tried two wars and lost, mm. emerging as the key member of the of the European Union. Mm. Okay? And so I see an emerging English nationalism manifesting itself now. Okay? And with very little interest in the north of Ireland, a pain in, in the proverbial, if you like, uh, Northern Ireland gets shoved back uh, in, 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 on the question of importance. Would you agree with that? I would, and it kind of it gels into the, the point that I was making. So, so for many of these people who have come from that nationalistic background where they, you know, it was power and control, that had their various different zones they controlled around the world, which we were we, we, we were part of, and that has been slipping away because that the world is, has changed significantly from that with the with with, with, with just these changes, and not having that control even within their own country, they have sort of grouped together now, failing to see any any other point of view. And you even look go back to I mean I trace this back to Brexit. Brexit happened at a particular time; nobody thought it would, but they managed to convince the average punter. Mm. Um, that life could be much better. Oh, now, yes. Everybody yeah. looking in from outside yeah. couldn't figure out. Yeah. And I mean, from an Irish perspective, we see, you know, from the time we joined Europe in the early 70s, just how, how manifest life has, has mm-hmm. changed so significantly, uh, not just in social policy, but in terms of cohesion funds and investment. And really, it wasn't and just and about... The and the market. That was the big... And that was the point I was making. Like, the, the money gave us the, the capacity to build our infrastructure, to get us fit for purpose, to to live our lives and to be able to trade with the outside world. And that we did. And it was really the opening up of our economy to be able to trade internationally and trade with into such a huge market in Europe that has made life so sustainable for us. And yes, there's been ups and downs about it, but our relationship with Europe and our close contact with it has been really beneficial. The British, because it was the size of the country, they ne- the regular person never really felt that because I suppose they had an industrial revolution that we didn't have yes. so you know there was good jobs there was there was a good way of life to the extent that so many people from here in the 40s and 50s went there so there isn't the same I suppose legacy of, of difficult times mm. uh, as, as we would have had so they, they may not have appreciated the same extent and maybe in another 50 years the Irish population won't be as uh, positively disposed towards Europe because they won't have had Sort of the the sort of institutional memory of, of how life was mm. was like pri- prior to joining the European Union, so that all plays out with 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 where they're at at the moment, but the 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 capacity to 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 inflict such self harm that on on the country by by the Conservatives is is just hard to fathom. Some of the individuals where it's just about, as I said, protecting and preserving their sense of of, of ownership. Of government, uh, yeah, a sense of entitlement. Now, I mean, to think, with Boris Johnson won an election, whatever it was, two years ago, um, at twenty nineteen, twenty nineteen, yeah, three years ago now, to forty what percent, forty three, forty four percent. The Tories are polling at the moment fourteen percent and and sliding in the po- in the polls to see that. So so they clearly have lost the dressing room to use to use the the, the term. What the, the, what does crystal ball say to you? It's hard to see how the, the any new leader is going to be able to, to get control within the Tory party in the first instance. Like there's there's clearly three, maybe four splits in the party. 
Um, there's a progressive group who'd like to get things back on track, which I think Rishi Sunak mm. would represent, even though he would have been a Brexiteer uh, at the beginning, who, 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 who understand what the country needs. But is he going to be able to unite a really split party to be able to bring through the kind of policies? Because what Britain are going to have to do now is what we had to do a number of years ago to get back our financial independence. There is going to have to be a period of austerity. Um, they're going to have to raise taxes. Now, don't forget that Liz Truss was elected on the back of cutting taxes mm. um, and spending more money, which is what got her and the country into the mess that it's in. So they're now facing a period of, you know, to use that awful term, fiscal rectitude, mm. which is reduces, reducing spending and increasing taxes. That's going to be very hard, you know, if you're, if you're at 14% in the polls and fellas are looking around and saying to themselves, well, can we get through the next election? So I'm not so sure that they'll be able to hold it together to the next to the next election, um, let alone who's going to be back as as prime minister. I mean, to mm. think that Boris Johnson could be could be the next prime minister, and 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 he he so well could when you read some of today's papers with the kind of splits that are there. Um, I mean, there's lots of criticism of politicians here, but somebody somebody said to me yesterday evening they're making you guys look very good. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, Jimmy, I, and I've heard that for a few, on a few occasions back along over the last couple of years. We're going to shift a little bit away from the the British uh, because we can, yeah. could spend all day on that one, I know, and merits perhaps a, a return to it at some stage in the future. But there are little issues, micro issues. Okay, which we periodically here on the radio uh, share with guests. And one of them is the extraordinary latitude. Is that word uh, the kind of um, slowness to respond uh, that we've experienced in a number of uh, our relationships between state, between government and the permanent government, the civil service Mm. and the community? And that is one glaring one standing out, and that is the question of licences in regard to forestry. Now, it's only we're taking that as a minor example, but it's a serious question. We have a national commitment, kind of a national commitment, to plant X number of trees per year for good environmental and social and economic purposes, right? We agree on that. Why is it that we're constantly faced with slowness of response from our civil service? What the heck is wrong? Uh, Do we need a bit of an injection of some ism or other, you know, Mm. to shake us out? Yeah, it's it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem in this area, as you know, because there's so much much forestry. What, What there had been was a lack of ecologists to do the appropriate assessments uh, on the on the felling of timber and the impact that that might have on the environment. And there, there, there is laws governing that. And unfortunately, the Department of Agriculture, in my view, were slow to identify uh, the shortage of, of, of ecologists. Some have been appointed. Um, but from my experience, it hasn't sped up mm-hmm. uh, the issuance of license, either from a planting point of view or from anything that you have to do above a certain size of plantation, you have to get licensing and permission. And, like, in my view, it should be fairly straightforward. If a far, There should be one license issued, and it's the time that you plant. Because if you plant on the basis of state supports, you're planting for a purpose. Mm-hmm. It's not beautification of an area. 
uh, it's about a commercial decision in most cases um, to plant timber with the idea of a cash crop at the end with the thinnings and all that goes through it. So the one permission, the one ecology report, the one process should be in place. The land type doesn't change much from whether it's in Terkana mm-hmm. or Glenvanish. The listener, the listener now following yeah. Timmy there must realise that there are about five licences mm. required from the day you decide you're going to plant to the day that you clear fell and replant. The, uh, five. Mm. Certainly four. Am I right? Yeah, you, you are. I think e- all individual yeah, applications. Planning issues then for roads if yeah. you've got to put roads yeah. in. And, and like... Actually, I, this is... And it, it, is, it, it, it is, yeah. It is. It, it, it absolutely has to be streamlined because we have fallen... Now, there's two reasons why we have fallen short of the plantation, the, the level of plantation that's required. One is the government haven't brought forward this year, and we just met with a bunch of foresters earlier last week about the idea of bringing forward a policy now uh, that plots out what can be planted next year and the year after. It does need yeah. government support, for sure. It does need yeah. funding um, because in the early stages of a plantation, the, there's, the, the there's, farmer, no there's, there, there's nothing. So there has, to be, there has to be a quid pro quo here. I mean, the plant, as you, as you rightly identified, it's positive for the environment. It captures carbon, and mm-hmm. we're all talking about carbon and the damage it's doing to the environment in terms of um, greenhouse gases, etc. And there's a value now placed on carbon. So yeah. if you're yes. a carbon emitter, yes. you have to pay a certain into a fund. And what the effort now is to get the, 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 the benefit of the removal of that carbon by the planting of, of a forest, get that benefit through to the farmer so that the farmer sees a, an annual payment yes. in the way that there had been previously, but it's got, it's got to be restructured and changed. And then at the end of the, the, the process, that there is... Uh, money's uh, available to the farmer for the sale of the timber. Will you get a response to that, to that particular vision you have, which we would share, mm. and as expressed by you? And yeah. just, oh, well, where I had can s- you move it? Yeah. Can you actually say, Jim and John, I'll be back here in, in, in six months, and you, you'll have noticed a huge difference between the question of licensing and hold-ups and appeals and the, consist- the constancy of that. Uh, would you be well I have I mean I have been for, for quite some time been pushing that although it's it's slow to get the kind of success that we'd want now I was hopeful uh, that after the last government was put together with the appointment of a minister for forestry like Pippa Hackett from the Green Party who had a good plan but it, it just hasn't manifested itself it hasn't delivered on the ground to the extent that it should mm-hmm. and it has to be reviewed in fact as I said we had a discussion about it last week it'll be coming up again next week and I'll be continuing as I have been uh, over the years, pushing to get that change because just the process is just so cumbersome, and I know there's issues because, and part of the problem is the capacity to refer things to the court. So somebody can take uh, an injunction against the issuance of a license, and yeah. if it hasn't gone through the various different yeah. processes, but uh, that doesn't take away from the fact that it's inhibiting in a huge way the benefit to the environment, which is the removal of carbon yes. uh, fr- from the atmosphere. And on top of that, which is the secondary point. Um, we're short of timber. You talk to the, the sawmills, you talk to the people who are in construction, there's a, there's a really significant shortage of timber to the extent that we're awful, import, awful, importing awful. it. And it has gone, like other commodities um, in the building sector, it has gone sky high. I okay. mean, it has the, co- the costs have gone up. So even Irish timber, not, not, not exclusively, but in, among certain uh, timber types, has higher moisture saturation in the timber. Absolutely. 
but even at the at the at the at the the value the timber is now making, it becomes very economical to go through the drying process and okay. bringing our own timber to, to, that a, to, to that standard that would, 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 would okay. remove the... Okay, Tim. Now, so you know where we're going to come next time around. I do indeed. <laughs> we want to say... We'll have the homework done again, now, John. Now, <laughs> Sitting now, in front of two former <laughs> teachers of mine. <laughs> the, 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 real, the real immediate concern among quite a number of people in the, in the East Clare area is what has not been happening in relation to Shannon Heritage. Yeah. You, our listeners, we just to remind you, um, the County Council felt they were promised a, a subvention to actually enable them to take over the uh, ownership, if you like, and running of Shannon Heritage, which incorporates uh, the in the East Clare area what does it incorporate? Craigenhorn, Bunratty, what have you. And now we learn from the media that the government are not providing money and there are so many people whose livelihoods depend on that. And we've been asked, please raise this with Timmy. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what would you say to that? Yeah, but so just a bit of background because it's always helpful to, to give the background to any situation. Yeah. When Shannon Airport was devolved, if you want, from Dublin Airport Authority. A yeah. couple of things happened. It was subsumed, it subsumed into it, took into it all the assets of Shannon Development, which mm. were really, really valuable. So Shannon Development's assets were all the, the buildings in mm. and around the, the industrial park, together with the assets that are Shannon Heritage, Craig and Owen, Bunratty, etc. And the promise at that stage by the people who wanted that independent structure was that they would use the, the the income from the industrial estate to fund everything else. Didn't quite happen like that. They've done really well in, in building up the industrial park. The airport has had a questionable period in between. Yeah. So the government had handed over all of that and gave them all the assets for free with no borrowings to make that a success. To whom did they give it? To the Shannon Airport entity, the Shannon right. Group. Yeah. Now, the Shannon Group is financially very strong, very viable because of the amount of free assets that it got, all those buildings mm. and all the rent that it mm. generates from that. So then they have decided then that they didn't want to run the tourism piece anymore because... Which is called Shannon Heritage. Which was kind of loss-making. Yeah. Quite frankly, they didn't invest a whole lot of money in it either. They mm. could have done a lot more with it. They concentrated on building up the the industrial park and worked a little bit on the airport. They left the other thing to wither, quite frankly. They left, in my view, Shannon Heritage to wither a little bit. They didn't invest in it the way they should have had during COVID, then, the decision was taken because they, they wanted rid of it. And the council, because the council has been doing well in running uh, the Cliffs of Moher Centre, the council, just, we could do a good job here if, if we got it. And they put together a plan and they said, well, to take it over, it'll cost 15 million. Um, government said, OK, go ahead and take it over uh, if, that's what you, if that's what you can do. There was no commitment given to providing 15 million to do it. But what the government have said, and they will do, is provide capital monies to upgrade the castle and the facilities that need to be upgraded. Um, the government are slow to commit to monies to run the place. Why? Simple. If you start giving somebody some money to run it for one, two or three years, you're going to be paying it every year. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what they were trying to do was put a level of fiscal discipline on them in the same way as the Cliffs of Moher got 30 million day one to build it 
no more recourse to government thereafter. It's run efficiently. And there was concern at, at department level that if you start paying the running costs of any facility, you're going to be paying it forever. And it takes away the necessity to make it a success. Um, and that, that's where it's at. Are you saying there is money or there will be money available to to bring it up to standard? There will be capital monies and there will be capital grants and there's monies coming or available from the OPW even at this stage of probably, I don't know, four or five million to do up the castle because that's a heritage site. That has to be protected regardless. But but let's not lose sight of the fact that the monies that government give isn't coming from a a magic tree somewhere. It's taxpayers' monies. The people around Scarif who pay their taxes pay their rates. And they don't want to see that spent uh, without proper oversight either um, and are across East Clare. So what I, I think what, what's needed from the council and the airport together with the department, and there is a working group working on it, sitting down, agreeing the figures, ensuring that the facilities get up and running because it's really important to the region that these facilities are operational um, because they bring tourists to the region. Um, it benefits okay. hotels, okay. bed and breakfast, okay. everyone else. But it can't be just that it's going to require a lump of money every year from central government. It has to be able to wash its face. It has to be able to operate commercially. And it can and it will. Um, but there are misunderstanding, therefore, when on the debate, in the debate, when, when it started. Should we, county council, I mean, we take over? Uh, and uh, did they genuinely believe there was going to be an annual subvention well, there for was a while. N- there, was never, there, was n- there was never a promise of an annual subvention. Mm. Um, what the council set forward was what they would need mm-hmm. to do it. Yes. Um, and that's working its way through, but there's no agreement on it. And, and there that's, was n- a, that's a once-off <laughs> payment the of one, capital money. It, it, there will be some capital money, but I think what the council had wanted was some money just to cover overhead to cover the running of the facilities for a number of years until they'll get to a point where yeah. um, it, 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 it would be operating. Now, that's all. You, you, you can agree that today because the county manager or the chief executive is there. He, they don't go on forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, the department are saying, well, you make that commitment, but the next guy that comes in or the next woman that comes in, they're back to us two years' time saying, yeah. well, we still haven't managed to break even. We're looking for another continuum of five million a year and and and, and that's not sustainable and, and that's not a good way for government to do business either to put funding okay, into it. okay so it's about it's about getting it right the commitment is there on all sides um to get these facilities up and running to protect the workers that are there in the first instance to ensure that they know that they have um a, a, a job that they have a viable income and all of that and then get the facilities to a point where they have been modernized um, and that they're offering a product that people want. And that, like we've seen how strong the offering is there, but it does need updating. It does need to be modernised. It does need to maybe change its focus a little bit. Um, and that'll bring more tourism. That'll benefit all the businesses in the region, hotels, etc. But it'll also benefit the airport because okay. people have a reason I'm just them. watching the clock over, Sorry, Jim, over yeah. John's yeah. shoulder there. Uh, just, I suppose, one or two things briefly. Shannon Airport, mm. it appears to maybe if not turn the corner, then heading towards the corner from which it will turn. Yeah, it's getting back towards where it was prior to COVID. And there's been a wave of announcements. They're really only working our way back to where we were prior to COVID. And where we were prior to COVID, quite frankly, wasn't great. Mm. We had seen a massive increase in tourism across the state 
from the recovery from the financial crisis that bedeviled the world. So that was, we started getting out of that 2012, 2013 along there, back up to 2019. So like Dublin had seen a massive increase. The country had seen a massive increase in tourism, but Shannon was really just about holding its own small increases, small reductions. So whilst it's positive and it's going the right direction, there's a couple of big things that have to happen across the country in terms of a change of aviation policy. We do need to see by direction of government and by national policy, more activity in regional airports. Um, we need to see more investment from the Shannon Group into building links that in the first instance mightn't be uh, financially viable on day one, but would have the capacity over time to be. And I'm talking of getting into places like Frankfurt um, and yeah. Schiphol, yeah. which are big business links. Um, but Shannon has a, has, has a great future and there's no doubt even with everything that it has suffered it is able to get back to a certain level of you know 1.6 1.7 million passengers a year but the big effort has to go into kicking it over 2 million right. to one half. and that's really where an airport then starts to have critical mass and where one flight bounces off another where you can start to develop that I, notion I, of a hope I have Tim, Jim I have a vision okay that Timmy's name will be associated with what I'm going to say. Uh, and, and, and in a generation's time, they'll ask the question, who came up with that idea? We're short of doctors, correct? Mm. Yeah. We find that the majority of a class of graduates this year headed off to Australia. I have two grandnieces, doctors in Perth, one is a doctor just over a year, and the other is a doctor over two years. I'm asking myself this question. Why should we educate okay, uh, our young people in order to go and fill the voids that are in places like Perth in Australia? There are 200 and X number of doctors in the city of Perth. Irish. I'm proposing okay, that uh, doctors on qualification will be obliged to commit two years to the state. It's not, no, there's nothing particularly revolutionary about that except in the Irish context because you do have countries where young graduates are expected to make one return. It could be a year of public service. This, in this case, I'm saying, you cost us an awful lot over and above the old cost of a BA or a BSc, as the case may be. As the case may be. So, Timmy, yeah. I'm proposing, is there any possibility that we can consider uh, requiring a, a young medical graduate to commit a year or two years to the state? It was looked at before. Was it? Um, and, and it was talked about, actually, it was talked about in the first instance about nurses, because we had seen such a flight yes. of nurses and we had such a shortage. And I, there was a sort of, a, a, a lot of talking and it never came to anything, because I think there was the view that you didn't want to restrict people's right to travel, right to movement. And we also see a huge benefit of doctors going and getting experience overseas. I come at it, I know what you're trying to get in terms of the solution, I'll come at it in a different way. We got to train more doctors. Um, there is a kind of maybe a, a situation that's gone on in, 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 in medical schools here for a long time. The colleges set aside so many places for Irish students which come through the CAO and the HPAT and all of that. And then on the other side, they have another stream 
which is bringing in students from outside the country, which they charge at full whack. So yeah. if, if, if a student at the moment is paying a registration fee of, a, it's about 3,000, I think. There's 1,000 coming off as a result of the budget, which I'm very pleased about. But, yeah. um, but so, so, so th- they're bringing in foreign students to, to fund other aspects of the college. They're charging them, I don't know, 10, 15, 20,000. So many of them come from African countries. They come from countries where there's some super wealthy people, there's some very poor people, but the quality of the education is very good here. So the super wealthy send their kids here. So fees of 15, 20,000 mean nothing, nothing to them, but it, the colleges are helping. Now, I'd be saying, should we be following that process or should they be in a private school in Dubai or wherever? Um, should we be keeping those places to train more doctors? Still allowing those that wish to go to Australia, but by creating a bigger pool um, of domestically trained doctors, more of them will stay here. I also think we have to... This was something that was brought to my attention recently by uh, what, as he referred to himself as, I'm an elderly GP now, Timmy. And he said, under the, 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 the qualifications that are there now, or the access to medicine, he said, I'd never have gotten into medicine. I was considered an average yes. student going yes. to school. Yeah. And he said, so all he ever wanted to do was be the GP. But you, the points go up so high now that you're getting the brightest, the best from the top layer. And they don't necessarily want to be the GP in Scarif or Tulla or Fiegel or whatever. They want to be the best neurosurgeon, the best orthopedic surgeon, the best vascular surgeon. So maybe the education system and the reduction in the number of places has created a situation where you're only going to get the top percentile who, by their nature, will want to be pioneering uh, in, in the field of medicine. Yeah. That's not to suggest that the GP is, yes. is not an yes. important yeah. piece of work at all. Of course it is. But it's a, it's, it's a different type of person. And that's where we're, we're running into t- t- difficulties that we have, we've streamed it so much that we're losing uh, the person who wants to be the community GP. Yeah. yeah. Um, Listen, I can stop you there, okay. if that's okay. No problem at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, because we, we really have we're gone over time at this stage. <laughs> Sorry we had that. another guest. No problem. And it's always good. Uh, to you. And we've gone through a number of uh, areas. And I'm sure John will have questions for you when you come back again. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. I better, I better have a result on the forestry. <laughs> Senator Timmy Dooley, uh from Mount Shannon, living in Tulla, many thanks for joining Thanks very much, gentlemen. And, uh, <laughs> thanks, and tell Aoife good luck uh, in the match. And tomorrow. And tomorrow. Thanks a lot. Appreciate okay. it. Thank Bye. you very much.